Hey everyone, just a couple announcements before we get started. First, Criterion Institute has launched their new podcast. I've mentioned it a couple times in the announcements in previous episodes. It is now finally live, and you can check out that podcast at uh, criterioninstitute.org slash podcast. I've also put the link in the show notes. And Criterion Institute is an organization that is all about shifting power dynamics in finance to achieve more equitable outcomes for all. Its founder, Joy Anderson, has been on the podcast. I don't remember the exact episode number, but it would have been somewhere around episode 18 or so. And Joy is often credited as one of the pioneers of gender lens investing and has been in the field for a very long time. And the podcast itself is a really interesting one in terms of format. It is a series of either conversations, reflections, rants by Joy. Those are usually my favorite discussing frameworks that Criterion has created. But all of it is very thought provoking and incredibly original thought. So I would highly recommend checking out that podcast if you like this one. Also, Bank of Montreal recently put on an interesting panel discussion about employee ownership trusts. The panel included John Shell of Social Capital Partners. And John has been on the podcast before. Uh, it was episode 25, I think, where we talked about this as a tool for wealth, promoting wealth equality. And it's a model that exists in the United States and the UK, but not in Canada. Um, and thanks in part to the work of Social Capital Partners, the federal government has indicated that they're looking into bringing this model to Canada. And it's a, just a very interesting panel discussion about the benefits and types of situations where employee ownership trusts are suitable. So I'd highly recommend checking out that discussion. I've linked to that replay of the discussion in the show notes. And with that, let's get on to the podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Real estate as an asset class has had an absolutely remarkable run since the 1980s when we entered a several decade period of economic prosperity, stable inflation, and declining interest rates. Add to that more than a decade of quantitative easing that continued to ensure that cheap financing was available for consumers and homebuyers alike. But as with every good story, it eventually must come to an end, as it has for real estate and the economy more generally in 2022. As inflation has reared its head, we've been left with rising interest rates on top of high prices for goods and real estate, thereby dramatically straining housing affordability. Enter today's guest, Mazyar Mortavazi, president and CEO of Taz Impact, an unconventional company that uses real estate as a tool to tackle climate change, broaden affordability and equity, build social capital to create neighborhoods and ultimately cities where people thrive and belong. Taz Impact is a certified B Corp, signatory to the PRI, and member of the Global Impact Investing Network. TAS pursues opportunities that create values for investors to generate measurable social and environmental impact. During this episode, Maziar and I discuss the current state of the real estate market and how we got into this affordability predicament, the institutionalization of residential real estate investing, the ESG and impact issues with conventional real estate development, 
new investment models that are addressing housing affordability, TAS Impact's impact measurement framework, and the importance of inviting communities into the property development process. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end when Maziar discusses where he sees real estate headed in the next decade. And with that, let's get on to the podcast. Maziar, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, David. Yeah, thanks for joining. Can you give everybody a quick introduction to who you are, what you're up to, what you're passionate about? Yeah, for sure. So Mazier Mordozavi, I'm president and CEO of TAS Impact. We are a real estate platform where we leverage real estate as our tool to drive deep purpose, which is really the segue into my passion. We, I'm trained as an architect, have been involved in real estate for 20 plus years, and I'm incredibly passionate about using our ability and our privilege in the space of real estate to drive positive impact through a generational lens. And I really see us and the work that we do as stewards and having the role of stewardship for future generations and how we think about our society with a long-term view. So there's a lot to unpack here as we go through. One thing you mentioned is you've been in at this for 20 years. As I understand it, Taz Impact is a family business. So it started at by your parents, it is. is that right? Yeah, yeah, it is. So our mom and dad started the company in 83 and our first iteration was TAS Enterprises. And, and that's sort of, it's, uh, it was founded as a custom home building business. And mom and dad grew the custom home building business through the 80s and 90s, at which point we sort of re, repositioned ourselves as TAS Design Build because that, they, they were designing and they were building. And that became one of the anchoring pieces for us was sort of the attention to design and quality. And that's very much the, the, mm. our founding DNA, I would sort of say, was in that idea of how do you actually create homes for people with a deep intent around design quality. The business grew through those first couple of decades. I joined the business in the early 2000s, and we began to sort of transition our work from custom home building into development and grew the business through the 2000s. I often will joke about the fact that the only thing that grew bigger than our business was my ego through that period of time. And then the global financial crisis happened and we got taken out. And so 2009 to 2011 is what I call my MBA years. I lived, I lived a live MBA in terms of restructuring the business and launched into where we are today as a sort of multifaceted real estate platform. We do ground up development where we acquire and title and deliver on a variety of mixed-use assets. We're asset managers where we own and manage properties long-term. And we have a private equity business uh, that is focused in real estate investing. The private equity is purely sort of impact-focused real estate investing. We repositioned the company as TAS Impact a number of years ago to really begin to sort of speak to the focus and the mission, the vision of the organization. And it's really the coupling of purpose and profit that has set us apart and where we've emerged as global leaders in real estate impact. Yeah, okay. So there's, again, lots, lots to unpack here. But it's, boy, it's been a fascinating journey, I can imagine. I'm just thinking about the real estate market in general. You said it was at the 80s that your parents started it? Yeah, time? 83 was when, they, was when they started the business. So we're almost 40 years into this. And would they have not, I, you must know from maybe stories they've, they've shared with you, but the 80s, was it the late 80s we had the massive real estate correction? Yeah. So was like interest early, rates would have yeah. been 20% in that was the early 80s. That was, yeah, that was the yeah. early 80s. So they built their first home and the market crashed. They couldn't sell it. So they yeah. moved into a house they couldn't afford. And uh -huh. then dad ended up taking a job traveling to Houston, Texas, designing a theme park with one of his friends. So he was flying back and forth. 
got a call from my mom saying, we got an offer on the house and without asking how much it was for, he said, just sell it. So it was a bit of a bumpy start. It is the immigrant story. When you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. And so it was really that sort of drive that got them to sort of keep to it. They sold that house. They made a little bit of money. They bought another one, built another one, then sold that, then bought two, then bought four. And because of their commitment to design, their, their work was sort of differentiated in, in its design and design quality that by the late 80s, early 90s, they had started doing custom home building. And so it was really commission-based. And it almost became a bit sort of recession resilient for them because a lot of their clients were people who'd made a lot of money. And then when the recession happened, they actually had time on their hands. So they, were, they would build their homes. And so they built the business. Started their, initially, were building 2,500, 3,000 square foot homes that grew to 5,000 square foot homes. And then it grew to 10,000 square foot homes. And I think the largest home they ended up doing was about 50,000 square feet. But a lot of what came out of that experience and what sort of catalyzed their transition into development was this idea that they were using design and incredible quality building for the ultra-privileged. And coming out of my master's thesis, my master's thesis was focused on how to preserve cultural character under the force of gentrification. And it was really this notion that, well, why don't we use design for good? And why don't we actually take those same principles of high-quality design and bring it to multi-unit housing. And that sort of was, was the catalyst for us to start moving into the development space. And that our, we started hiring really great architects, started doing really interesting buildings. The ideas around the, the impact were sort of, well, I joked about the ego part, but the, those principles were there. We did the first lead certified sales office ever, I think that's ever been done in 2006 for our M5V project. M5V became one of the first, if not the first gold certified lead buildings in Toronto. And then our journey continued. And having gone through the challenges of a recession or of a financial crisis, losing everything, it really does become that kind of that sort of phoenix moment that, you know, now that you've burnt down, what do you want to do? What becomes relevant and how do you want to sort of pursue this? And it's where we began to really hone in on the sort of the purpose side of the business. When we launched or when we relaunched in 2011, we became a B Corp, which was really those are that stamp of commitment of being a corporation that does good more than just does sort of pursues profit. We became a founding member of the SBX, which is the Social Ventures Connection, and became one of the first accredited impact investing platforms. And it was that kind of deep commitment that we want to drive profit, but equally be very focused on the purpose we have. And the Profit component is actually really critical to our mission because the scale of the problem we face in society today is far greater than anything one single organization can address. And coming from an industry that is very financially driven and very financially motivated, we've always taken the position that we are using purpose to drive profit and that we are able to generate impact alpha through our investment strategy and our approach. So we're not actually compromising return. What we're doing is driving higher returns by engaging in a deep and sort of comprehensive way with our impact strategy. And what I'm most proud of is the fact that impact driving chain to us has become deeply embedded into the DNA of the organization. I talk about the process we've gone through where it started with SRI, CSR, it evolved into ESG, and I would say for the last sort of 10 to 15 years, our deep focus has been embedding ESG into the DNA of the company. Impact isn't something that we do in addition to, it is what we do as a company. And so it's not like there's an impact department that does the add-on. We actually, impact is a lens through which we see everything that we do. 
from our investment acquisition strategies through to our development strategies and through the principles of long-term ownership where we believe that driving impact generationally needs to actually happen at the heart of ownership. Yeah, I mean, I think like the language you used, and I can't remember if it's on your website, you might have even said at the beginning here around the your purpose and passion is to solve this challenge you mentioned, and your tool is real estate. Is that, I'm probably going a little bit out of order on where I wanted to tackle these questions, but I can't resist asking because I'll forget if I don't ask it now. That switch from, it sounds like it was the financial crisis and that setback and kind of the re-emerging from the ashes is too dramatic a term for, not. for what happened. <laughs> okay. And really embedding the purpose into, in the impact into Taz. Is that like culturally, how do you make that transition in the organization? Presumably oh, some of the staff are still there and not that it wasn't necessarily you were oblivious to these things before, but you're now making it an integral part of the business. And it's like, Hey, we're we are a purpose first organization. Real estate's our tools. Is that a difficult mindset shift to make? Like not just for you, yeah. but across so the some, When the global financial crisis happened, we went from 40 people down to five. And that was one of the five. Oh boy. So it really does. Sadly, it becomes easier. Yeah, yeah. So it really was coming out of the ashes. And so that was part of the commitment out of the gate. Like if we're going to do this, uh, yes, the money's great and the money and all those elements, I'm, I'm not one to downplay it all. We're very capital focused. We're very profit centric for the reasons I mentioned, but profit isn't the purpose. Profit is yet again, one of the measures of the work that we do, mm-hmm. but it's having the clarity of purpose and vision of which profit is one measurement of our success. And that I would sort of say what has been the hardest thing for us what has now emerged to be the greatest thing for us was making this commitment early on and being relentless around the pursuit of it. And from the assets we acquire, the team members that we onboard, the depth of education and resource investment that we do, there is there needs to be this uncompromising pursuit and consistency so that it does become culturally embedded into an organization. That's why my, I use the reference that sort of ESG is what we embedded into our DNA so we can show up to deliver the impact. And the impact is only relevant once you measure it. And it's through our measurement and where we are that we've emerged as global leaders in real estate impact investing. Yeah. Understand that. Um, can we talk a little bit about, I'm curious for just to talk about real estate in general as an asset class. And we are at a very interesting time, I would mm-hmm. say, in, in real estate. What do you, uh, I'm just curious for just like at a high level, what are you seeing happening in the real estate market here in, in Canada? I think you've got to focus more so on Ontario than other provinces. Like from what you're seeing, like where are we at in the market in terms of like housing affordability has become obviously a really big issue. A lot sure. of homeowners worried about rising inflation and interest rates and their ability to afford afford their homes and rental prices are going up. So what are you seeing in the market right now? I'm just curious for your overall thoughts. So listen, I think that what we're seeing in the market today is part of a continuum of the challenges we've faced in the market for a while. And I would maybe start sort of macro where these are very much urban issues as opposed to being 
sort of Canadian or Toronto issues. And so the shift towards urbanization, the increased demands around housing, the resultant pressures around infrastructure, both physical and social and cultural, are all parts of the reality of what we're facing as a society broadly today. In the North American context, North America has evolved over the last 50 years as a bastion for home ownership, and it's been very much tied to the identity of North America around this place of opportunity. And for many who come from other parts of the world, the idea of ownership is fundamental and foundational to sort of resilience. When we look at other developed parts of the world, and I think the most potent example is Germany, where close to 80 or 85% of housing is through rental, part of a different construct. Housing at its core uh, and housing ownership is tied to individual resiliency as a form of equity and a form of equity growth. And what makes it particularly hard in the North American context, and now specifically in the Toronto, Vancouver context, and somewhat in the Montreal context, is that this miscorrelation between growth and availability and the resultant supply-demand pressures that have, in a very, very short period of time, displaced affordability into the housing ownership space. So a bit of a pause and a bit of a sidetrack. If you were to look at Toronto and Vancouver specifically 20 years ago and said to anyone that we would end up where we are, everyone would have laughed and no one would have believed it. Part of the challenge we face in real estate is that real estate is a generational asset class that in many ways has been sort of commoditized and treated as a commodity asset. And the drivers of real estate for demand are often miscorrelated with market and misaligned with policy. In simplistic terms, real estate always responds to historical data. So people look at markets and market data. Market data is what's happened in the past and very little regard is given to demographics and social implications of demand, which are future looking. Also, from a policy standpoint, the policy challenges we face is that policy is driven by political constructs that are effectively on three-year cycles. So the decision-making isn't made from a generational lens, it's for the votes in three years' time. And so the confluence of the sort of drivers around policy, coupled with a rear view lens from a market standpoint, are what have created the compounded effects of where our housing is. So that's what the cause is. Now, what are the solutions? Because we can all point to problems. And I think one of the things we're very good at doing is pointing to problems, but very little regard is given to just sort of solutions. At the heart of the way that our markets work is the fact that the entire market construct is predicated on free will. People talk about influencing what the markets do. Well, there's two things that influence markets. One is policy, 
the other is capital. Given the fact that policy is constrained by political cycles, the real opportunity to actually put emphasis on cap on the markets is actually tied to capital. Now we transition to the conversation around capital. The challenge we have with capital is that capital today has been defined by financial metric, which is to say that our measure of capital success is predicated on putting in $1 and extracting as many dollars out as we can. The problem with extraction is that it leaves holes behind. In the context of capital, it leaves social holes, cultural holes, environmental holes. So we now have sort of defined two issues. We have a market problem as it relates to housing in terms of affordability and other considerations. And we have the driver of those markets having very little or no regard for the implications of how it operates. In our humble opinion, the big opportunity that we face is redefining capital. If we begin to actually give capital attribution and value to social capital, cultural capital, and environmental capital, alongside financial capital, when a dollar of capital gets invested, and it's only when it begins to measure for the full net effective impact of capital that we can begin to change the markets. And so the whole premise of impact investing, the whole premise of socially minded sort of financial construct is the ability to measure for the net effective outcomes of the investments that we make. And so our humble opinion is that if we want to change the, and, I, and it's not just housing affordability, it's housing accessibility, we need to begin to think about how we want the capital to be measured so that it can influence the markets in which we live. Can you give me the distinction between affordability and accessibility? Housing accessibility to us is tied to the full spectrum of quality of life. So to us, housing accessibility is about elements of social infrastructure, cultural infrastructure, environmental infrastructure. It has to do with being able to access food and quality food, having access to green and natural spaces, social infrastructure in terms of hospitals and school systems, as well as cultural infrastructure in terms of the, sort of the elements of quality of life that enhance the overarching experience. And so accessibility of housing is to us this wholesome approach of looking at all of the inputs that create quality of life versus just the affordability piece. If you have an affordable rent, but you have to travel two hours to and from work, or it takes you an hour to get your kids to school, or you can't access quality food, it doesn't matter if the housing is affordable. It doesn't solve for the quality of, it doesn't solve for sort of the, the accessibility you need across all spectrums of, of life. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. That's a great, a great distinction there. I'm curious, these don't directly relate to, to, to has, I, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, I mean, what we're seeing right now is sort of this feels like an institutionalization of real estate investment, particularly around increasingly moving into single family home residential properties with large institutions like Blackstone. And I think there was some talk about core development group and buying up and then renting out single family residential. I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on like that as a, whether that 
the concerns there are, are well-founded, whether there's a positive development or negative development or neutral, depends on the institution doing the buying and rent. Listen, I, it goes back to what are the measures of capital? Like what is that capital doing and how is it sort of, if I, if you get a large institutional platform going in, buying homes and making sure that they're also funding the schools, funding the infrastructure, providing accessibility, ensuring diversity, those are all great things. So to me, great, that's capital that's measuring the net effective outcome of what, of the investment that it's making. Right. If it's a matter of a financial roll-up strategy to control market, that's problematic. It doesn't matter who's doing it. So again, I, to me, we're very focused on, on first principles, right? Because it's so easy to go into all of these different rabbit holes around sort of pointing to the nuance pieces. The nuances are fundamental, but it goes back to first principles. Right. And I would sort of say that as opposed to, to sort of picking at sort of, are the institutions doing good or this or that, it, that it's actually like, what are, let's focus on first, like what really matters, right? And to me, it, often people will say, oh, look at all these politicians. It's like, well, we have such bad politicians. Well, who's voting them in? The moment that politicians want to get raises, people throw their arms up and say, oh, look at all these politicians getting raises. Yet, and then people complain about the quality of politicians we have. There's a really basic correlation. People want to be paid for the value that they create. Are we okay paying politicians the same way we pay corporate CEOs? Right? So again, it's first principles. And I think that becomes really important. So is the financialization of housing a problem? Yes, absolutely. How do we solve for it? A society we need to demand differently from how our capital performs. Some of the biggest investors are pension funds. Those pension funds represent pension holders. Those pension holders have a voice. So I just think, I, I think we need to sort of, I think that's a really important part of people showing up. And I always talk about the greatest fan of this country and also its biggest critic, right? Because being in Canada is relatively easy. Living in this country is relatively easy. And I do not want to downplay the challenges of affordability. I do not want to downplay the challenges that some people face in terms of access to medical health. Those are all real. But relative to many places in the world, it's pretty good here. And the problem we have is that it's pretty good here, which means that given that it's comfortable, it's very easy to become complacent, and that complacency leads to mediocrity. What's extraordinary about Canada and what's extraordinary about places like Toronto is not what we are, it's the potential that we have to become extraordinary. Potential isn't self-realized. It's not a self-realization. Potential is something that requires incredible effort, determination, and willingness. And I'm incredibly vocal and passionate about this because I fundamentally believe that Canada represents a global ideal that if we do not fight to preserve, enhance, and improve, we're actually risking sort of humanity in a much greater sense. And a lot of the work that we do comes from a place of believing that with the privilege that we have, and I believe that being in Canada is a privilege, comes the responsibility of driving that towards that extraordinary. And complacency is not going to get us there. 
Yeah, agreed. I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a, a bit about it at a high level. What are, within real estate, broadly speaking, in the areas that you focus, what are sort of some of the major environmental or social issues that come up or levers that can be pulled by developers that that will make an improvement. So like what, when you look at the landscape, like here's where we see some, I'm sure you could go on endlessly, but what are sort of the major areas where like it's being done this way and instead we should be doing, thinking about it differently or doing it this way. Yeah. That's a great question. So I'll start with, I'll start with the sustainability piece because I think it's easier. One really simple thing everyone can do is to ask on all of their construction projects that suppliers provide them with an environmental product data sheet, EPDs, which is to say that once you request for someone to provide you their environmental product data sheet, forcing the supplier to take accountability for what they're putting into their products and how they create their products. There's a platform that we use called One Click LCA, and it is a means of actually measuring the carbon footprint on a project. And it's done through the measure of sort of data collection through environmental product data. And to me, it starts with just asking the question and knowing what you're doing as a starting. It's only once you know that you can then actually begin to have the intent of making change. So understand that everyone talks about carbon footprints and carbon, carbon zero and this and that. Let's just forget about like the big stuff. And it's not, and I'm not downplaying the big stuff, like the big stuff is fundamental. But in terms of a starting point, if everyone would just ask for the environmental product data sheets and then ask, okay, so what's the alternative? Once you know the information, once you have the data, it actually empowers you to make the choice. As developers, we are incredibly powerful in driving this change. And it starts with the simple things of just asking for the information. So... Low-hanging fruit, I think it's just, it's a very simple, but a powerful thing to do. You don't need to change all your team. You don't need to change everything, but just ask for the information. So to me, that's the one thing, low-hanging. On the social part, not dissimilar, I do believe that inquiry is the most powerful form of leadership. And we make a point of starting every single one of our projects from acquisition, from the time we acquire it, whether it's our income assets or it's our, our development property of engaging with the local communities. The biggest challenge around the social impact piece, everyone keeps sort of saying, well, it's so hard to measure, it's so hard to measure. It's hard to measure if it's treated in the same way that we treat carbon, which is a scientific measurement. Social measurement comes out of systems and systems-based approaches, which is to say that in order to actually get to impact measurement, social impact measurement, you need to actually engage in a process because social impact is by nature bespoke, which is to say that it is through a process that you're able to identify your stakeholders through stakeholder identification, identify the social gaps and shortcomings within the construct of the communities you are engaging in, define what impactful social change means and by defining it setting out the metrics to measure for it the start of that process is the openness and the willingness to be inquisitive inquire and engage in conversation and 
to the benefit of the developer, the greatest resistance, the nimbyism, all of the challenges we face in the entitlement process are often anchored to a core human instinct, which is to resist change as a means of survival. However, the moment you begin to engage, the moment that there's a conversation, not only do you bring down the temperature, but you identify opportunities that through alignment can be catalytic for the outcomes of the projects you're developing. So again, not dissimilar to the environmental side, you need to ask the questions. On the one hand, you need to ask the questions about the products. On the other hand, you need to ask the questions from the stakeholders. Do you... I'd be curious to understand the challenges and opportunities around understanding the stakeholders' views. So imagine you can enter an area as a developer and you've got all the sort of stakeholders who, who come in to, that work together to develop, build, and then rent out these properties, these units, and build all this. And then you've got the communities who have been like living and breathing and operating there for, and know the kind of like, how do you get their perspective in a way that is as genuine, that, that gives you the proper understanding as an outsider who hasn't actually lived that environment? Like, what does that actually look like? Are those focus group discussions? Are they town halls? Are they is it a combination of things? And how do you get their voices to the table? So I think the anchoring piece, it actually has this with an authentic intent, right? It's, and, you know, I always assume that the person across the table from me is a lot smarter than I am. So it, that, that's my starting, which is to say that when I go into a conversation, and I'm using the, the generic I, sort of when we as an organization go into a conversation, we go in with an authentic intent to sort of understand and learn. It's not a, it's not a linear progression. It's a cascade that needs to get created because once you start one conversation, it typically starts with the counselor's office. Then you're put onto a, a community group. You're connected to a BIA. You begin to sort of have this sort of this cascade effect that begins to create and people begin to show up and people begin to share. And it's through that that you begin to distill and begin to identify. I can use an example. We've been deeply engaged in the Annex neighborhood with the Walmart Street Baptist Church now with, that we've partnered with. And that conversation started with the Baptist Church. And at the same time, we also engaged with the very close to it is the Toronto Indigenous Center on Spadina. And so we started engaging with a number of the elders. And as a result of that, we started doing tours, community tours, with the elders telling us the indigenous story of place. And as a result of that, we began to sort of define heritage, not by heritage of built form through sort of a Anglo perspective, but we saw that as one component that is part of the continuum that started way before with the indigenous storytelling. Right. And so then that began to inform the way that we were thinking about how we designed the building and we're working with indigenous designers as part of our design team in imagining how we bring back the layers of indigenous heritage into the property through landscape and architecture, as much as we're looking at preserving the heritage of the Baptist church, right? And so we actually didn't know where we would end up, but it was through that inquiry that we kept getting connected into sort of these different insights. And it was through the building of insights that we were able to begin to take a much more collective and holistic view 
in the way that we're approaching the problem. Yeah, that's that, that's very interesting. I'd love to pr press into that a little further. So how would you, could you sort of give an example of how this sort of, what I think you're talking about is sort of this really deep, intentful listening to listening to understand rather than sort of this performative, well, we're just going to say that we had these consultations with these groups and then we're just going to go ahead and do whatever we want. Anyway, how has that actually led to differences in your plans for a property as a result of that deep listening so that such that if somebody from the outside came and said, uh, this all this sounds really nice that you're having these consultations, but like, this is a checkbox ex exercise. You're doing it because you have to, and you could say, no, cause like, here's literally how we, you know, these were changes that we made as a result of hearing this and it made the, our, our, it was a fundamental difference in how we were going to tackle this as a result of that. Gosh, there's so many examples. We are. We have a project in the Junction Triangle where we're at the tail end of building a rental building there. That project was originally, was a factory warehouse. We'd made application to the city for a conversion through the Municipal Comprehensive Review to convert it to mixed use. We got turned down, but we'd started in parallel a community engagement process. And through one of the, we, there were, we were invited to a fundraiser at the local public library. And we sort of asked out of conversation with the community group was like, well, what would be sort of ideal? And they said, well, we're renovating this library. And we said, well, what if we had a bigger library? And, you know, fast forward, we'd been refused by municipal comprehensive review twice, but then struck an agreement with the council and the community to build a 10,000 square foot library at the base of this building. And through community initiative and sort of community engagement, the community showed up to support the project and push the approvals through and the conversion through. And now we've ended up with a brand new 10,000 square foot public library at the base of a building, which is the first time the city of Toronto has done that. And so not only did we get community engagement, not only did we get sort of entitlements approved, we were also able to innovate with the city to deliver a new form of public library. And so that to me is a very tangible example of where in the absence of community engagement, we would have had, we would have ended up with sort of a failed attempt at entitlement. From a pure economic standpoint, we haven't been to the OMB or LPAD in almost 15 years and we've had millions of square feet. Of and so to me, it's as much, this is about good business. This isn't sort of a altruistic construct, right? Mitigating risk is a huge part of what we need to do in our industry. And so we're not doing this just because it's good for the community. It's about alignment of all the different stakeholders, including ourselves and our investors, that we're trying to push for collective wins. But it's really this lens of looking at collective win as opposed to financial gain alone. And that's really the underpinnings of all of this is that we can go for collective win if there's a willingness to listen, if there's a willingness to engage, if there's a willingness to collaborate. Yeah. That's really cool. I like that. I like that example a lot. So I maybe dive into Taz Impact specifically. Maybe you can talk in a little bit more detail about what you do. In particular, again, this sort of difference between Taz Impact and traditional multi-purpose developers. You introduced a, an impact framework, I think, in 2021 mm -hmm. for the first time yeah. and have just released your first annual impact, impact. report. Yeah. Maybe that's sort of, uh, you can take that wherever you want to describe Taz Impact, but that seems to me one of those fundamental differences. I don't know too many real estate develop, developers who have a, an impact framework, so. 
Yeah, for sure. So it goes back to first principles. As I said, you know, our focus is leveraging real estate as a tool to drive social change through deep impact. And I humbly believe that in the absence of measurement, it's a lot of greenwashing. And so we've been committed to sort of report out what we do because we keep ourselves accountable. And it starts with internal accountability as an anchoring piece. I mentioned earlier, functionally as a business, we do ground-up development. So we acquire, entitle, and deliver mixed-use assets. We have an asset management business where we own and manage industrial, commercial, and residential assets. And we have a private equity business that sits on top and is the capital feed into what we do. And so our big differentiator is that as we look to all of our work, we measure our financial performance and our impact outcomes as being equally weighted, which is to say that we will never do a project that does not have an impact component to it. It's just we're not interested and it's not what sort of drives our agenda. And so that's foundational for us. We will equally never do a project that's not profitable because we believe in profit. And so it's really the coupling of purpose and profit that has positioned us and has allowed us to emerge as being fundamentally differentiated in the marketplace and how we think about the work that we do. The impact framework was the first step. And as I mentioned, this has been a journey. So it started with sort of CSR. We really focused on embedding ESG into our DNA. And as we've been pushing and pursuing measurement, we've been taking the steps to get there. Um, it started with our impact framework because we believe that in order to actually drive these outcomes, you have to first frame them out and sort of define what you mean by them. And then once you've defined them, given the nature of the business that we're in, it's very much iterative. And so while there are components of it specifically anchored around the E that are more tangible and measurable, our focus is mandated by our three pillars of sustainability, environmental sustainability, affordability, and equity, and social capital. And so we've taken a very systematic approach of defining these three core pillars for ourselves. Then impact framework is where these definitions came to be. We anchor it around the principles that it starts with us as a company and our values, and then builds into these three components. We then take these three components and sort of define them at the project level. And at each of our projects, we then specify how we're going to achieve these three desired outcomes. And in defining those desired outcomes at a project level, we then put into place our measurement components. And all of this is tied into our impact dashboards. We track these against each project. We score them in the same way that we score financial performa. We are sort of measuring them in the same way that we measure for our financial performas right to the point that our CFO is actually responsible both for our impact measurement and for our financial measure. And that was really critical for us because we never wanted to be in a situation where one is compromised against the other. And it's in this integrated approach that we have emerged as sort of being fundamentally different in how we work and how we leverage the asset class as a tool to drive what our purpose is in, in the impact. Interesting. Yeah. You, that like, and that process for even putting in an impact framework, it, you described it as a journey. I mean, from what I understand, you did a landscape analysis of the various impact frameworks out there and, and selected an existing framework that you thought 
fit fit for purpose future fit sorry framework maybe just for folks who again aren't in the impact kind of measurement and management side of things and i know that's not your necessarily where you spend all your time what goes into that like that that's months and months of work is it not yeah and actually the interesting thing is so we spent about 12 months so it took us about 12 to 18 months to get our impact framework in place and then as part of that we chose future fit and that started implementing with future fit the only problem we had was that sort of eight, nine months into the process, FutureFit folded as an organization. Oh, I didn't realize uh, that. I haven't heard of FutureFit myself. But, yeah. um. So they so the re, we so the, the underpinning of why we went with FutureFit was the first platform that we saw that was actually focused on measuring net effective impact, which is to say that there are a lot of platforms that measure the good that you do, but FutureFit was measuring the negative impacts you have as well. And it was only once you brought in the negative and the positive that you could actually begin to transition the organization to have net positive impact across everything that it does. And a huge part of the greenwashing happens when people wave about all the good things that they do without any regard for the adverse impacts that they're generating as well. And so that was the catalyst of why we went with FutureFit. And while at first the team was gutted when they heard that FutureFit was folding, we actually saw it as an opportunity for us to sort of double down and develop our own measurement framework. Because even in the context of FutureFit, it was sort of a more, it was a, sort of a corporate framework, not a real estate specific one. And so the team has been very focused over the last several months of developing our measurement frameworks and beginning to put into place what we hope will become sort of an industry standard around impact measurement for the industry. Interesting. And so you... Lemon went to the case of when you're given lemons, yeah. you make lemonade, right? So yeah. you have to see, it's the eternal optimist in me. It's sort of, you've got to see opportunity because this is such challenging work that 100%. if you don't see the opportunity, then it always feels like it, there's a setback that you're facing. Yeah. I think anybody who's meaningfully working on impact in any industry and trying to get real change, yeah, if you're not optimistic, you're not going to last very, very long. Very true. So you, I, as I read it in the framework, there's sort of, you got these three or four kind of like high level objectives. So one of them is targeting net zero carbon footprint by 2045. There seems to be a focus on affordability as well. The affordability and equity and then social capital. So the sort of the three, yes. is a, the anchoring piece, the overarching piece is that it starts with us as an organization and our philosophies and our beliefs and how we show up. In order for us to then be able to deliver against our three main objectives, being environmental sustainability through carbon, our affordability and home equity and social capital. So they'll become the, our three sort of mission-driven areas that we focus on through our platform. And so can you give folks an idea of like in your context, what does it mean for like, how are you, I mean, the carbon, I think is a, maybe a little simpler to imagine, but for the other two, how are you measuring those things? And maybe how have you been doing so far? Like where, cause you've launched the inaugural one year impact report. What were sort of your findings from that? How are you doing? How are you measuring that? And for sure. So on the carbon front, we are, I mentioned of the one-click LCA, we're tracking and identifying all of the, the inputs into our projects. So we've done quite a bit of work around carbon study as it relates to timber versus concrete versus low-carbon concrete. And I think one of the things that's really unique about the way that we approach this is we take what we call sort of an equalizer approach. We're not looking just at environmental sustainability or just at affordability or just at sort of cap social capital. It's how do we actually approach these things holistically. So for example, a pure timber building is the, creates the most sort of reduced carbon, 
but it also has a fundamental increase around affordability. So how do you approach these things? So we're doing a lot of work around measurement. The other thing that we've been doing, which is one of the things that I'm quite sort of excited about right now is um, we're measuring the embedded carbon within the buildings and the assets that we acquire in order for us to actually inform the design of new developments by measuring the embedded carbon, the capture of materials through demolition, and the repurpose and reuse of them back into the sites and the projects. So on our two Tecumseh project, as an example, we're capturing close to a thousand cubic tons of carbon through the demolition of the existing buildings and using that in the landscape design through gabion walls and benches and all of the different sort of site furniture. So that whole idea that one of the first things we're now doing on our development sites is that we bring in a demolition consultant to identify what materials can be captured. That list of materials is then provided to our designers to include and incorporate into the design of our projects. Right, so when you say captured, does that mean like literally just reusing? Literally reused. Yeah. yeah, like literally reused. So completely changing the process. I think that's one. I think that the definition of insanity is repeating things and expecting different outcomes. It's about doing things differently. And that's just one very simple but concrete example of doing things differently. On the affordability and equity side, it's sort of a two-pronged approach for us. One is around sort of the number of affordable units we're providing, and this is both through our residential and commercial portfolios. We believe that in order to drive a economy of innovation and ingenuity. You need both affordable housing and commercial spaces to catalyze new businesses, to, to help drive entrepreneurship. Sort of all of that kind of creative thought needs spaces and often affordable spaces. We've done a lot of work helping to catalyze social enterprises, socio-environmental enterprises. We have a great collaborator of ours called Just Be Woodsy. This is a company that approached us about five years ago. They won the contract to, to collect the fallen trees in the city which would typically get mulched, they won the contract to take these trees. And what they started doing with the capture of these trees was to put them, bring them to one of our properties where they had set up a, a kiln. They would sort of cut them into slabs, kiln dry the wood, and set up a furniture studio. Uh, they went from two people, they're now I think up to 12 to 15 people, and they supplied all the furniture for the new one hotel in King West. And so this idea of, and then we're, that site, we're demolishing that site, which is the same site where we're repurposing all of the concrete and all of the bricks into our landscape, but we're now moving them into a permanent home and into one of our industrial hubs into our community hub strategy. So again, to me, that is both around building social capital, but it's also about building social equity and sort of helping from that standpoint, so which is really critical in, in that regard. We're measuring for affordable housing through the number of units we're providing, through the provisions we're making through partnerships. We're huge proponents of partnership. We have a great partnership with Woodgreen, who's sort of an affordable housing provider. We recently announced a partnership that we're doing with Options for Homes around sort of home ownership affordability. But we're also making a big push around shared equity. As we were talking earlier, the North American construct of ownership has been a way that we've been creating value and equity. But as affordability begins to change, the question is, well, how do you redistribute equity? And a big push for us right now is around shared equity through rental models, where our tenants, both residential and commercial, would be able to participate in the value created on the upside of the equity based on proportionate shared sort of value creation. And those are pieces that are currently underway around that. And then finally, in terms of our social capital, 
it's really embedded into our process. One example I'll use, we have a quite a large site in Mississauga. We're developing a couple of million square feet through a mixed-use project there. We spent the last 12 months in partnership with the United Way, bringing together what had historically been a disparate number of community groups into a collective working group about imagining and redefining what social capital looks for a gentrifying neighborhood around the Cooksville Metro Station. Now, and it's through that work that we're bringing sort of collaboration into place. And that's now manifesting in a project where we will be delivering affordable homeownership, a pretty significant community center, looking at sort of the integration of affordable commercial spaces in, in, alongside of the affordable housing that we're doing. So this idea of actually catalyzing groups. And then the last example I will use is a partnership that we have in Hamilton with the Hamilton Community Foundation around the redevelopment of the Copley building, which is the old suit making factory in Hamilton. This is a 150 plus year old building where we've been working with Hamilton Community Foundation and a group of non-for-profits in Hamilton around redefining what a non-for-profit cluster looks like. So that through shared services and shared facilities, these organizations are able to enhance their offering by reducing their footprint and their sort of operating costs. So again, like they're that we have, we've got to my comment about social impact, there isn't one solution to the problem. This is where deep engagement begins to unravel what the problem is, identify where the opportunities are, and through partnership, deliver deep impact. Yeah, that's really great. Those are really like those the color and the kind of meat you put on the bones with the examples. With I, I'd be curious to hear any other thoughts that you have and are willing to share on the idea of kind of Renters being able to participate in the value creation and upside. I think there's been a, there's been an increasing number of models popping up on, around real estate. So like co-ownership models with Arboro and fractional ownership with Willow, this idea that like just so expensive for people to buy real estate these days and how do we make this more affordable? I'm, so anyway, that's why I'm sort of curious about this. What are you, do you, is this sort of fully mapped out or is this just sort of an idea that you're mulling over um, and what, it, what information you can share about what you're thinking? In about? between, it's in between. It's not fully formed, but it's, it's more than just an idea. And so we're just working on the, the principles of it are that to me, whether it, you're looking at models like uh, employee shared ownership programs, uh, ESOPs. So, I was just uh, thinking the same thing. Yeah. So uh, my like, buddy Bill Young. I'm not sure if you've had. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure if you've had yeah. Bill Young on on on. He was the my very first guest. Okay. Well, there you go. So, yeah. so you know, everything work... starts with Bill Young and impact investing in Canada. I think. Yeah. He'll take sure. all those roads lead back to Bill. Yeah. No. Well. Well. Bill has been such an incredible champion for us, but it's under the same principles, right? It's like, how do you actually correlate effort for value? Um, and, and it goes back to that same principle of capital and how you define capital, right? Like again, first print, this is why first principles become so Better. important. And so the foundational piece for us is the correlation of effort to value and value created as developers, we take the upfront risk of developments, but over time, the renters who keep paying us, we keep benefiting from the value that they're helping generate. To us, it's not to sort of say, now we're going to give the house away. But what we're saying is, you know what? If we can allocate, say, notionally 10% to go back to the renters, well, that allocation of 10% is helping them, but it makes them sticky for us. So it's helping us. Yeah. Right. And again, it's that frame of mind of, of how do you drive resiliency 
as opposed to being myopically focused on how do you extract profitability. And when you begin to take a shared values approach, then it's about the collective making more, right? It's this sort of notion of that the collective can have the additive impact on the collective is far greater than the individualistic take. And whether that individual is a corporation or a person, it's when you come together, it's the foundations of what the strength of community. And so it's anchored around that belief. And that's the approach we're taking and the focus that we have around sort of principles of shared ownership. Love it. Well, I would love to maybe wrap up with a couple questions. One is maybe talking a little bit about what types of investment opportunities there are for individuals. You've, I think you've over the years raised numerous funds, I imagine. Can you talk about that? Yeah, for sure. So we are, our private equity business is sort of runs different funds. We're currently raising our fourth development fund. We are just launching our first income fund. Our development fund is focused on accredited investors. And so more of a sort of high net worth institutional type structure that we run. We are working on making our income fund RSP eligible. And so we're going through that approach. So it'll, this will be the first pure impact focused core plus income fund, I think in the country, if not globally. So just a pure impact play. And that's, we've exceeded market returns on the work that we've done while delivering impact as well. And this is really where the purpose and profit piece comes together. So, so what assets, what tells us in that income fund? It's all income producing real estate assets. So residential, commercial, industrial. So again, all of these assets with a focus on how actually drive community impact and social impact environment. Okay. And that's the one that would be RSP eligible? Yes, correct. That you're looking to, and that, is that open to retail or is that high? We are, where that's, we're working, working through that right it. now. And that's sort of, that, that's sort of a big area of focus for us. We've had, and this is again about making real estate accessible. Yeah. That's a big emphasis for us of how do we actually begin to create investment vehicles where people can align their investments with their value. So it's a core focus for us. And I hope we'll have something ready in the next sort of two to six months on it. And then that would be like, you'd have, you'd purchase that directly through Taz Impact. Right? We will likely be going it. through, we would like, well, we would likely be going through Wealth Advisors and we we're not, we won't be set up to do retail investing direct. So that'll be made available through our, our distribution network. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'd be curious to see where that falls out. One of the challenges often see are you, you can create the product, you can make it RSP eligible and then getting on the distribute on the shelves of the distributors. And getting advisors to be able to actually be aware of it and recommend it and know about it is a big challenge in this country. So no, I, it is. Uh, but yeah. I think that I think the fact we this goes back to my comment about sort of privilege and responsibility. It's given how we've emerged in our leadership position in this, we see as level of responsibility to try to push for this, and we're getting quite a bit of interest from our banking partners because again, everyone's looking for impact product. There's very few that are available. Yeah. Well, with the final question, I'd love to just ask, maybe there'll be two questions that are, one is, what are, what do you sort of see, where do you see the future of real estate headed? Like in an ideal world, you're an optimist, so I think you're probably going with the optimistic scenario. What do you see the kind of Canadian real estate landscape looking like in 10, 15, 20 years from now, some meaningful period from now. Yeah, for sure. So as an, I fundamentally believe that so long as you can hold on to real estate, we'll hold on to you. And it's a game of leverage. Even if you tend to sort of overpay a bit, as long as it's a good location and you're not over levered, you can always sort of manage through the ups mm -hmm. and downs. Real estate is cyclical. It always has been, it always will be. And that's just the nature of it. Specific to the Canadian context, we don't have anywhere in the world that has as 
progressive a immigration policy as we do. Uh, we continue to bring new people in and we continue to be challenged with supply. And so the cycle of ownership and affordability will always be there. And as increased prices sort of come into play, the demand of rental will only increase. And we forecast significant growth in rental rates because of that, but equally why the shared equity model becomes so important for us because we think that's inevitable. I think that's going to be moving in that direction in a significant way. While so long as people can manage their leverage, real estate's a great investment. But I don't believe that ownership is the only way. And that I think as we move more and more into the sort of advances of technology and all the rest, the opportunities for entrepreneurship and I think the opportunity for people to actually place their equity to align with where they're creating value is going to become more prevalent. We'll see growth in the rental market, but we also see significant shifts in the kinds of places that people are living. One of the things we often speak to is the fact that one of the challenges our industry has is that it sort of repeats what it knows as opposed to innovating for what is needed. And so we tend to take very much a product-based approach. What we love about product development is that product development happens to solve the problems. And so we look at our work through the lens of product development versus sort of condo design or interior design. And so products solve for problems, whereas repeat and doesn't necessarily do that. So we think that we'll see a lot of innovation happening in the industry. And I think that we've seen we've seen sort of the emergence platforms that you mentioned, like Arborough and the like, now who are beginning to help address some of those concerns. And we see that continued innovation really more closely coupling with real estate, both on the financial structuring side, but also on the materials and build side. Well, that's great. I appreciate the time. Maybe my final question will be, were there any aspects to Taz or any issues that you felt like I should have asked about or that you think are interesting for the listeners to hear about? I think where I mentioned, I think at one point where we are expanding across Canada because we, we think that the work that we're doing, we've been tapped to do work sort of across the country. We do a lot of partnerships, as I mentioned. We get approached by a lot of people who either own land or owned assets and their value aligned. And so they're looking for development partners who can sort of show up and sort of collaborate with them. So we've been doing a lot of that work. We have a gym and a full-time trainer on staff. It's, and it, for me, it's sort of that if you're going to work, then you want to be in a place where it sort of aligns your values. And to me, it's that sort of, you know, we do a lot of work around sort of wellness, both sort of mental and spiritual, but also physical. So how do you actually support people in, in, in their whole? And I think that's sort of part of our culture and important. So there are a lot of nuances. Like I think the thing that is most unique about us is the fact that it's consistent no matter where you sort of peel, peel the onion. And I do believe that in order to drive impact, it's about consistency and transparency and a sort of a willingness to commit to the long-term outcomes. But the fact that if you take a long-term lens, the outcomes are compounded and beneficial to everyone who's involved. Yeah, I mean, for me, one of the, there's lots of social is out there, but where there's this rubber meets the road, usually it's, a, it, I mean, you can get a lot more technical about it and you get a lot more depth, but that's such a great first way to sort of distinguish the end of the wheat from the chaff is like, do you even have a an impact framework? Do you have a theory of change? Or have you documented this stuff? And so businesses that, that haven't, done any of that work, but yet are sort of touting all the positive aspects of what they do, it's sort of, it's, a, it's an easy indicator that, okay, they can't be taken that seriously if they haven't even bothered to articulate the problem, what they're solving and how they're like, what they're doing to solve that and then setting measurements. So looking at what I give kudos to going through the website, you put that stuff front and center and it's clear there's been a lot of 
work done and it doesn't mean that you're perfect and it doesn't mean that you get everything right every all the time but it's sure an easy way to distinguish an organization that's serious about the stuff and ones that aren't and so kudos for that and it was a very really interesting discussion i'm not, i don't come from the real estate sector and so these aren't a lot of these issues are new for me and i think for a lot of folks so i appreciate you walking us through a lot of that stuff it's that's fascinating and kudos for the work you've put in thank you and appreciate the opportunity to share it with you and your audience well, thanks, Mezra. We'll have to have you again back down the road and get an update on where you guys are at and the impact and what new developments have occurred. So if you're up for that sometime, we'd love to have you back.